Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a story about the University of Albany, SUNY, uh, restoring full academic status to Dr. David Carpenter after initially caving to pressure from chemical polluter Monsanto. For our weekly peace bucket, we hear from Dr. Jill Stein and Chris Hedges at the recent Rage Against the War Machine in D.C. Then Mayor Patrick Madden outlines his ideas on how to replace lead pipes in Troy. We then hear about books that feature food. And we end with a former media, media sanctuary intern, Hawaii Nishai. But first, your headlines. A 30-year-old father and one-year-old twins working for a local pizza store was killed in a crash with a Troy police car at the intersection of Hoosick and 15th Street at 1 a.m. on Wednesday. The state police and attorney general's office are investigating. The officer was responding to a domestic violence report. The Time Union report that advocates in the movement to end mass incarceration are ramping up their call to end mandatory minimum sentences a reform that President Joe Biden supported in his presidential campaign. Mandatory minimum sentences require judges to hand down prison terms of a certain length for people who are convicted of specific crimes, even if the judge believes a lighter sentence would be more appropriate. Lawmakers at the state capitol may not be willing to overturn sentences laws, especially with heightened concerns about public safety uh, amid a perceived increase in crime. The Times Union reports that the head of the Albany County Sheriff's Office business business office was charged with grand larceny and five counts of forgery after he allegedly siphoned more than $68,000 from the department's federal forfeiture funds account. Starting in 2024, Rensselaer County will provide a 10% property tax exemption to members of volunteer fire and ambulance companies. The woman injured during the November 20th shooting in downtown Saratoga Springs has filed a notice of claim alleging negligence on the part of city and city police department. Saratoga Springs police officers shot a Vermont deputy sheriff numerous times after he failed to lower his weapons. Weapon. The woman was the girlfriend of the off-duty sheriff who was engaged in a gunfight with another person. An independent scientific agency said there is no evidence linking site preparation work for offshore wind farms with the number of whale deaths along the U.S. East Coast, particularly New Jersey. That's it for headlines. And for our first story, SUNY Albany on February 21st reversed course and restored David, Dr. David Carpenter's longtime head of the Institute for Health and Environment to full academic status. SUNY has sought to restrict Carpenter's teaching status due to pressure from chemical giant Monsanto. We hear from Rebecca Martin of Riverkeeper and Dr. Carpenter. Over the last nine months, Dr. David Carpenter head of the Institute for Health and the Environment at the uh, University of Albany, SUNY, had been restricted in his teaching um, activities due to a request for information sent by 
um, Monsanto, uh, the makers of PCBs, uh, of which Dr. Carpenter is an expert and which uh, had often testified as an expert witness in cases involving Monsanto's production of PCBs. Um, this Tuesday, after the nine months, after a big community outpouring of support for Dr. Carpenter, uh, the University of Albany said that he is fully restored, nothing done wrong. Um, as part of our overview of this, we're joined by Rebecca Martin, who is uh, with Riverkeeper, and she was one of the core organizers that mobilized support to get Dr. Carpenter uh, restored. Uh, Rebecca, why, why was this so important, and why did you end up spending so much time helping with the effort? Yeah, thanks, Mark, for having me. I um, so I'm I work for Riverkeeper. I'm the director of community partnerships, and um, I work on a lot of campaigns, like over a dozen. One of them is on PCBs, and we're in the process of trying to establish a Lower Hudson Community Advisory Group, a CAG, and gearing up for the five-year review. Um, and of course, Dr. Carpenter is someone who has been a real a, a great friend to Riverkeeper and to all of us. And uh, so on a call um, on PCBs with El, um, Althea Malarkey, I, uh, from Scenic Hudson, learned about what was happening. Judith had raised um, awareness around this. And, you know, it was just a, a no-brainer. I mean, Dr. Carpenter is beloved to the community, to his students, uh, two environmental groups, two impacted community members um, all throughout the world, you know. And so, um, and and to think that a, a corporation, any corporation, would submit a FOIA or do anything at all in that regard, it wasn't hard to imagine. But what was difficult to imagine is how a public institution like a SUNY uh, would succumb to to their requests in any way uh, and jeopardize uh, Dr. Carpenter's in, in, uh, intellectual integrity, his academic freedoms um, was just, uh, it, it couldn't stand. And so we mobilized quickly. And at the time I was traveling, I was in Europe. So my first call with the team was at 1 a.m. for me, and uh, but we had to move. We knew that there was the potential of Dr. Carpenter being asked to sign, um, to sign off on something by March 1st. And so um, very quickly we organized and so many people came to the table and it was very organic with people taking on tasks and working together for a common goal so uh, uh harmoniously. And I love advocacy like that. I love so, it. Let, let me jump in and ask a question. So what, you know, why would a university like, like Albany, you know, not stand up for one of its own scientists, world renowned, widely respected, and instead appear to crumble merely from a free information request from a, a company who's a notorious polluter, not only of chemicals, but, but now with um, you know, genetically modified organisms. There seems to be a real problem with academic freedom in the state university system. But what we don't know is why did this happen? And I think that this is really important investigative journalism. I'd like to know. You know, it's it's a it could be a handful of things, right? It could have just been poor judgment. It could have been that there are 
there's financial items at stake. It could be a whole host of things. So we're joined now by uh, Dr. David uh, Carpenter. Congratulations, Dr. Carpenter. Well justified. But, you know, what's sort of your reaction to this uh, struggle you had with the university to recognize your academic freedom? Well, I guess my immediate reaction is relief that this is finally over. However, you know, this leaves leaves a a very bad taste in my mouth. why the university would be so frightened by big, bad Monsanto as to keep me on full salary, but prevent me from doing the things that I'm paid to do. I wasn't able to teach. I was specifically, my classes were published, were, uh, were uh, they were canceled. Uh, I was forced to go off all of the committees I was on. Now, most faculty don't object to that. But uh, I was not allowed to do anything. And initially, I wasn't even allowed to talk to my own students. Uh, So that's excessive response just because of a FOIL request from Monsanto. And I understand one of these trials involves one of the uh, Native American uh, populations up in uh, the northern part of the state. Yes, that's the big one that's coming up at the end of March, 1st of April. Uh, The Mohawks. Uh, with whom I've worked in most of my research on PCBs is studies in the Mohawk population. They're suing Monsanto for a total of $1.3 billion because not just of harm to individual Mohawks that have diseases caused by exposure to PCBs, but because they've contaminated their whole ecosystem. The air is contaminated. The soils are contaminated. Their PCBs in the tree barks, and uh, they can't eat the fish from their traditional fishing grounds, and uh, they have all these diseases because of that. So this is an extraordinarily important issue. Now, all of us have PCBs in our body, but the more you have, the more likely you are to have these diseases. And the Mohawks, through no fault of their own, are downstream from these three aluminum foundry plants and the Robert Moses Dam, all of which use PCBs that have contaminated their environment. Now, you know, you you were using part of the the fees that uh, were given to you as an expert witness uh, to help support, you know, your graduate students and you weren't allowed to teach. How how have your graduate students fared under this situation over the last nine, 10 months? Well, I've been able to continue to support them. So that's not been a problem. The problem is that and a mentor should be available every day to work with them and to answer questions and so forth. So the, I think my students have suffered much more than I have. I was accustomed to working at home during COVID, so I've continued to be work and I've actually been quite productive over this period of time. But my students were not allowed to see me in my office. They could come to visit me at my home. I could Zoom or email with them. But that's not the same as uh, face-to-face meetings on a on a daily basis. Now, you know, there were several thousand people who, you know, had signed a letter in your support. And, and one of the things you mentioned were, you know, many of the people you didn't really know, and even people from around around the world. You know, what what do you what do you think so many people, you know, besides your stellar record of really supporting people and, and, and truth and, and standing up for you know, those have been harmed, you know, 
Why do you think so many people jump to your defense? Well, I think there are two reasons. There are the reasons within the academic community where academic freedom, freedom for faculty to do what their passion is without being hampered by uh, university administrators is just a very important principle for any person in an academic setting. But many of those people that signed that wonderful uh, email to the president of the Albany, to the chancellor of the SUNY system, to the governor of New York, these were ordinary community people that are have been dealing with for years with local contamination and the health effects that come from those. And I'm not the only one, but I, I'm certainly one of the people uh, that come from an academic background who does what I can do to help protect people from the uh, hazards of exposure to environmental chemicals and also from the adverse impact of corporations that make and manufacture these chemicals. And in the case of Monsanto with both PCBs and Roundup, know that their chemical is dangerous to human health and yet still sell it just to make a lot of money. Well, congratulations on well-deserved uh, support, uh, Dr. David Carpenter and this uh, Institute uh, for the Health and the Environment, University of Albany, SUNY. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk uh, Magazine. So the Sanctuary for Independent Media will be hosting a celebration of Professor uh, Davis Carpenter's long career as an environmental advocate, uh, Sunday, March 19th. From 2 to 5 p.m., you can go to Media Sanctuary and find a registration link. The Rage Against the War Machine rally was held in D.C. on Sunday, February 19th for this week's Peace Bucket. We hear from Dr. Jill Stein, former Green Party presidential candidate, and journalist Chris Hedges. This is by Mark Dunley. On Sunday, February 19th, a thousand people or so gathered at the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. to rage against the war machine. The rally's demands included not one more penny for war in Ukraine, negotiate peace, disband NATO, global nuclear de-escalation, slash the Pentagon budget, and restore civil liberties. The rally was highly controversial within the peace movement, due to the fact that it included a number of right-wing and bigoted groups, starting with its main sponsor, the National Libertarian Party, which has been taken over by a right-wing faction known as the Mises Caucus. Others faulted it for not condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine, though most peace groups agree with the criticism that the United States and NATO provoked the invasion. The progressive endorsers of the rally supported the idea of uniting the left and the right on the grounds that the urgency of the anti-war cause necessitates unity above ideological and other differences. We hear from two speakers, Jill Stein, former Green Party presidential candidate, and journalist Chris Hedges. The National Green Party itself did endorse the anti-rally, but with only a bare majority after weeks of passionate debate about some of the rally sponsors. So we're here today, not just to rage against the war machine, we're here to dismantle the war machine because it is hurting us all, 
No one more than the people of Ukraine, who are the cannon fodder in this superpower proxy war. We need a movement to overcome the powerful special interests behind the war machine, the war profiteers, the fossil fuel barons, the health insurance barons who are profiting from the carnage. And in the interests of building that movement, I want to clarify some of the forbidden truths that we are not supposed to talk about. These are the empowering truths the war machine does not want us to know. This is especially for the benefit of the people who are just waking up to realize that we are all in the crosshairs of this crisis. Martin Luther King spoke the first forbidden truth nearly 60 years ago, that the US war machine is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And it is much bigger now and it's impoverishing and endangering us all. It squanders two-thirds of our discretionary budget. It puts at grave risk virtually every dimension of our security, nuclear, economic, food, climate, energy, everything. Left to its own devices, the war machine with its proxy NATO will destroy life on the planet. It is in the process of doing that right now. The dimensions of the war machine, you may know, are quite totally off the charts. The US has some 800 foreign bases, while Russia has about 30. Our so-called war on terror continues in a mind-boggling 85 countries. Do we hear about that? Not one bit. Our wars are going on in 85 countries. Our 840 billion, and that, by the way, is from the uh, Cost of War Project at the Boston University, not exactly a hotbed of radicalism. These are the basic truths that we are not supposed to know. Our $840 billion military budget is equivalent to the next nine military budgets combined, and the $100 billion we are spending to support war in Ukraine that alone is greater than the entire annual Russian military budget. We've conducted over 250 military interventions in the past 20 years alone and killed a staggering 6 million people in just a portion of the so-called US War on Terror. This murderous military spending consumes resources desperately needed here at home by 70,000 people who die each year for lack of health insurance, for a half million homeless people on any given night out on the street, for 33 million mired in student debt, 100 million in medical debt, 22 million impoverished children, and on and on. U.S. imperial aims are clearly stated in our official military policy known as full-spectrum dominance, an all-purpose declaration of war for all time against all economic and military competitors, friend or foe, which leads to the second forbidden truth, namely that the U.S. empire has been provoking war with Russia for decades. However murderous and illegal the Russian invasion is, and all wars are murderous, and almost all wars are illegal, that Russian invasion was a provoked response to an even bigger 
more murderous, illegal game plan of the U.S. empire, in which defeating Russia is just one small part. So yes, Russia illegally invaded Ukraine, but did so with a gun to its head, or in this case, nuclear-compatible missiles to its head. Next, we hear from Chris Hedges. We are here today to denounce the unelected, unaccountable, high priests of empire who funnel the bodies of millions of victims along with trillions of dollars of our national wealth into the bowels of our own version of the Canaanite idol, Moloch. The political class, the media, the entertainment industry, the financiers, and even religious institutions bay like wolves for the blood of Muslims or Russians or Chinese or whoever the idol has demonized as unworthy of life. There were no rational objectives in the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, and Somalia, and there are none in Ukraine. Permanent war and industrial slaughter are their own justification. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, and Northrop Grumman earn billions of dollars in profits. The vast expenditures demanded by the Pentagon are sacrosanct, and the cabal of war-mongering pundits, diplomats, and technocrats who smugly dodge responsibility for the array of military disasters they orchestrate are protean, shifting adroitly with the political tides, moving from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party, and then back again, mutating from cold warriors to neocons to liberal interventionists. Julian Benda called these courtiers to power the self-made barbarians of the intelligentsia. These pimps of war do not see the corpses of their victims. I did, including children, every lifeless body. I stood over as a reporter in Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Palestine, Iraq, Sudan, Yemen, Bosnia, and Kosovo, month after month, year after year exposed their moral bankruptcy, intellectual dishonesty, sick bloodlust, and delusional fantasies. They are the puppets of the Pentagon, a state within a state, and the weapons manufacturers who lavishly fund their think tanks, Project for the New American Century, Foreign Policy Initiative, American Enterprise Institute, Center for a New American Security Institute for the Study of War, Atlantic Council, and Brookings Institute. Like some mutant strain of an antibiotic-resistant bacteria, they cannot be vanquished. It does not matter how wrong they are, how absurd their theories of global dominance, or how many times they lie or denigrate other cultures and societies as uncivilized, or how many they condemn to death. They are immovable props, parasites, vomited up, 
in the dying days of empire, ready to sell us the next virtuous war against whoever they have decided is the new Hitler. The map changes, but the game is the same. This has been Mark Dunley for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So, the description, Rage Against the War Machine, was quite accurate. Um, As small as this particular rally was, it unfortunately was the largest rally to date against the war in Ukraine. A larger rally hopefully will be taking place on March 18th. A lot more of the big national peace groups are going to mobilize it. And that will be right before the media sanctuaries celebration of Dr. David Carpenter's life um, and work. And for those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. In our next segment, we are looking at the lead situation. On February 16th, Mayor Madden addressed the Public Utility Committee of the Troy City Council to outline his proposed plan for dealing with the lead surface lines. While expressing the need to 100% cover the costs of replacement, he also proposed a water rate increase to cover the costs. So the problem is um, not in the city water. The city water doesn't have lead. The the problem is in individual service lines, but not all service lines. There are instances of lead service lines in the city. And when the water sits in a lead line for a certain period of time, it has the uh, ability to absorb some of the lead into the water. Uh, We do treat the water to reduce corrosivity. Uh, and that does help reduce the problem, but that alone is not uh, sufficient in all circumstances. As I mentioned, we don't know where the lines are. We've asked the public for help in identifying their lines. We haven't met with great success there. Building an inventory is a crucial step, and we need the public's help to do that. We need everybody to complete the inventory, and we need it completed even if you don't have a lead line. We need to know that because the EPA is expecting that we'll have a complete inventory. Our best estimation, and this is based on limited data, is that there are 4,500 lead service lines in the city. As we get more responses to the survey, uh, we can refine that number. But that's probably a good educated guess at this point in time. Our working estimate at this time is that the average cost of replacement will be about $5,000 per building. It's an estimation. It gives us the ability to talk about a program. We have looked at a variety of approaches. We've looked at a fixed contribution that some communities are doing, two or $3,000 toward the replacement of your line. We've looked at an income-based grant. But none of the programs that we've come across offer an assurance of 100% replacement at the best possible cost. We do understand that the EPA wants all of these lines replaced. We do understand that many residents can't afford the replacement. And we do understand that tenants, which make up the bulk of our residents in the city, are at the mercy of their landlords. In view of these factors, we urge the council to support a plan 
that will cover 100% cost of replacement for 100% of the property, properties that have lead service lines. Our approach would be to, would be to issue an RFP for contractors <clears throat> and based on that negotiate a best price um, and using that, seeing, seeing if we can get a handful of contractors who will agree to that price. If we can do that, we put one or more contractors in coordination with our sidewalk and street replacement program so that we're not cutting into sidewalks and streets twice. We'd assign another contractor to work on one-offs, and by one-offs I mean um, individuals or addresses uh, where we have been informed by the county, uh, the county health department, that there is a lead issue in that property. It's not terribly efficient to do one-offs, but it is uh, compassionate to do one-offs. We will, uh, in addition to make this uh, happen a little bit better for us, we're going to bring to the city council uh, some code changes. For example, condition a CO on proof that there is no lead line service, uh, provide the city uh, greater leverage to compel more reporting. Uh, we, we're looking at a couple of options there, but uh, we need to deal with uh, those instances where we're not getting uh, cooperation um, from the uh, property owner. When it comes to staffing, we do not currently have the staffing to run a program like this. Uh, this program includes a lot of coordination uh, between and among <coughs> contractors, uh, between contractors and building owners. There's a lot of data collection, reporting, grant management, uh, and communication. There's also a very uh, detailed and complex uh, post-replacement monitoring that needs to go on. So uh, I won't get into the weeds on what we're looking at uh, in staffing. I just want you to know that we've factored that into the program uh, and it's included our, in our considerations of uh, cost. So given what I've said so far, we're estimating the physical cost of replacement of all lines to be in the neighborhood of 25 to $30 million. And again, that's based on assumptions that I've stated so far, all of which are subject to change. We are estimating the cost of running the program and post-replacement monitoring to be in the neighborhood of $270,000 annually. It's not likely that the program delivery costs can be covered by grants, but that is yet to be finally determined. We think our goal should be to complete somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 replacements a year at a rough cost of $1.8 million, plus or minus. For 2023, we have $516,000. I'm asking the council to reallocate roughly $1.1 million in uncommitted ARPA funds that weren't necessary for another initiative that we had approved uh, last year. That would give us $1.6 million to work with in 2023. Everything I've laid out to this point is doable. And what I'd like to discuss now is how we go beyond 2023 and the impediments that we have to overcome. To continue the program at that pace, we will recommend a water rate increase of about $1 per thousand gallons. That would yield 1.2 million on an annual basis. Uh, however, the next council and the next administration are gonna need to closely monitor that to ensure that there are sufficient grants uh, secured and uh, uh, adjust the water rate accordingly, and we can leave very specific instructions in that regard. Uh, that kind of an increase will amount to approximately $48 annually for the average family of four. 
those funds and any grants re received, uh, we would put into a, uh, a dedicated capital account. Uh, we worked that out with Andy, what that would look like. But that could be tracked separately, so the council and the next administration uh, could ensure that we have enough funds in there to continue the program. The rate increase ideally should occur as quickly as possible so that we will accumulate enough cash to um, start 2024. We need working capital. The grants are likely to be reimbursement, and we need to manage our cash flow throughout the project. The recently passed federal infrastructure bill includes significant money to assist localities in this work. Um, $15 billion will be available over the next five years uh, in increments of $3 billion a year. The funds will be funneled through the states, and New York has been allocated a total of $115 million thus far. Of that, $38 million will be available in the upstate region uh, in the governor's current budget proposal. Uh, we have made applications. We do not know the terms of the funding, whether it's going to be income-directed, whether it will cover the costs of administering the program, whether there's a match required. We don't have any of those details yet. Uh, but we do have good reason to believe we will rate highly. So I would just, uh, you know, I'll note that $15 billion is a lot of money, and we're very grateful to the administration uh, for getting that over the finish line. And it will do a lot of good across the country, but it will not be enough. Localities will ultimately have to do exactly what we are proposing, raising funds through a rate increase. I say that because each and every one of you will face opposition to a rate increase, but there is no alternative. Here's the wrinkle. The New York State Constitution seems to be a barrier to this plan. Under Article 8, cities are not allowed to use their funds or credit in aid of private interests. These lines are private service lines. If this provision admits of no exceptions, it presents a serious barrier to our efforts. It makes us entirely dependent upon grants, which typically are inconsistent year to year. Make, that makes it very hard to staff a program. Um, and the federal funds do run out in five years. And uh, that may happen sooner, depending upon how Congress acts with respect to the debt ceiling. So what do we do at that point? Uh, this concern is not unique to us. All cities in the state are running up against this, or they should be running up against this. Uh, we're in discussion with our Corporation Council, our Bond Council, NICOM, other mayors, uh, and Assemblymember McDonald looking for a solution. We are looking for a more expansive court interpretation of Article 8. Because this is a constitutional issue, it cannot be served with statute. So we need a workaround. That's the bad news. The good news is we have, <coughs> we have enough funding available for, to cover 23. And that gives us uh, a year to work with the state and the other parties to find a workaround. So assuming this committee is disposed to referring this positively to the full council, we will begin preparing uh, statutory changes with respect to the budget uh, request I put before you, the city code and our uh, water rule changes. In the meantime, we need people to share information about how to avoid potential lead poisoning. Of all of the environmental uh, threats 
that we confront on a daily basis, this one is very avoidable just by running your water. I know that's not a, it's not a permanent solution, but it's a stopgap. Um, and even if we get through this constitutional hurdle, we should, you know, we'll need to continue doing that because we can't replace 4,500 in one year. Regardless of whether you have lead, galvanized, or copper, you should run your water. Um, we also need uh, people to participate in the inventory. I do believe that as uh, funding becomes more competitive, those communities with a more complete inventory will do better uh, in the grant process. Now, I expect Jill Stein and Chris Hedges would point out, if we were to slash that military budget, we would free up money to replace uh, lead pipelines. This is probably the fourth segment we've done in the last week about the lead pipe issue. You can check out mediasanctuary.org. Last night, uh, I happened to interview Rob Hayes, the Clean Water Director for Environmental Advocates. One issue we raised, one, there is a lot of federal funds coming down, but second, there's also lead in the paint in many of these apartments, particularly in tenants. So this is a multi-pronged approach that needs to happen. Next, we head to books and books talking about food. Bria Barthel headed to the book house. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And I'm back once again at the book house in Stuyvesant Plaza to talk with Cheryl McKeown, one of the book buyers here, about some books regarding food. So if you haven't eaten yet, this might be a hard one to listen to. Cheryl, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, Bria. It's always a pleasure. We spoke um, around Christmas time and talked about themes, and all I could think about then was chocolate. So uh, that conversation kind of segued into books in which food is a topic, but not a food writing book. So it's not like... Um, Anthony Bourdain or Laurie Colwin or MFK Fisher. So these are mainly novels which have food as kind of a main theme. Okay, so what's your first book? Well, the first one that came to mind is a book entitled 800 Grapes by Laura Dave. And this book is partly of interest because Laura Dave is the author of The Last Thing He Told Me, which is a huge success. It's been a bestseller for about two years now. And it's a bit of a mystery. It's a psychological thriller but it has been wildly popular. 800 Grapes was an earlier novel of hers, and it is about a young woman who goes to her family um, vineyard and, and winemaking establishment in Sonoma County when things go a little bit sideways for her in Los Angeles. And it's a charming story in uh, the um, importance of family in our lives, but also it's a terrific overview of grapes and winemaking. And according to her book, uh, a bottle of wine requires 800 grapes. 800 grapes. So I can feel noble drinking wine, knowing that I'm helping to support the regional grape industry. This is true. And this is despite helping to organize on a very small scale for United Farm Workers Union in the 60s. So uh, it's been an adjustment to get back to eating grapes. I still think of them every time I eat a grape. But this is a great segue because there is a book that is not a novel that I wanted to talk about at the beginning, and that is a collection entitled Breaking Bread, and it's a collection by a group of New England authors, um, I think 40 of them, Essays from New England on Food, Hunger, and Family. It's a beautiful collection. It includes Richard Ford, Jennifer Finney Boylan, uh, Lee Smith, 
Richard Russo, of course, one of our favorites, uh, many others, and it's wonderful food essays. And part of the of the uh, profits from this book benefit the Blue Angels, who are dedicated to getting food directly from farmers to families in need in New England. It's a very direct charity. So breaking bread uh, would be a wonderful gift for anybody. It's currently in hardcover until September. So it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful book. So you can do uh, eating local and also reading regional. Absolutely. We love that. That's terrific. So getting back to some novels, most of you probably remember Chocolat by Joanne Harris uh, of, golly, maybe 20 years ago. Kind of a magical realism story about a, a chocolate maker in France. And still a lovely, delightful novel. Another one that's uh, on that order is Ruth Reichel, who, of course, is a beloved food writer, first with Gourmet Magazine and then a number of uh, memoirs that she's written about food. She wrote one novel, Delicious, and that takes place in New York City, and it involves a, a restaurant owner and the people in, um, in her life and the, um, their relationship with food. Another one that is that harks back a while is Nora Ephron's Heartburn. It did become a movie. There's, of course, always controversy about which was better. The book is beautiful. It's Nora Ephron at her best, at her wittiest. It's also self-referential because it is a thinly disguised novel of her marriage to Carl Bernstein. Somehow when I hear Ephron, I think of the, uh, I can't remember if it was Nora or Delia who was the younger one, and they each got a donut, and the older one saved it, and then ate it in front of her younger sister hours later. It seems like the Efren stories never end, much to our uh, benefit. That's that's a great one. Uh, Heartburn does include recipes, and my husband and I have two recipes from there that we have made for more than 30 years that we just love, and we always think about Nora Efren when we have them. A newer book entitled Love and Saffron is has just become a paperback. It was a hardcover. Uh, the author of Love and Saffron is Kim Fay. She lives in California, and the story is about a younger woman in Southern California who became pen pals with an older woman in the Puget Sound area near Seattle. The older woman was a, a newspaper journalist, and she had a food column. And the younger woman really was kind of enamored of her, uh, was a huge fan. And their pen pal relationship, which took place in the 40s and 50s in the novel, eventually led to their meeting. It's a lovely story. Also includes recipes. It's lots of fun. It would be a great book club book. When I was finally driving home from Buffalo after Christmas, I heard on a radio station a top whatever number of books from the year, and that was one of the ones they mentioned. It sounds really great. It is. It's, it's uh, doing very well, too, which makes us happy. I want to talk about an author who has three books which are food-related, and I have loved every single one of them. His name is J. Ryan Stradall. I heard that he recently moved to California. I was a bit disappointed because he is a Minnesotan, and uh, his books are, are very much Minnesota-centered. The first one was Kitchens of the Great Midwest. The second one is The Logger Queen of Minnesota. The third one, which comes out in May, I believe, it's not yet released, is Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. All of these involve regional recipes, regional food. Uh, the kind of fish is the fish that one would find in the lakes of Minnesota. And they're also family stories. The Logger Queen of Minnesota is 
possibly my favorite, and it involves two sisters, one of whom has become very successful and the other who, who really hasn't, and there's a resentment between them. And the one sister who's very successful has actually uh, brewed and marketed a beer. So when I look at his books on the shelf, I think of two things. First of all, rhubarb pie and beer. The very regional books and terrific stories with great characters. And I take it from how you talked about it that you are from Minnesota? <laughs> I'm from Ohio, but our menus are pretty much the same. <laughs> it's Midwest food. So uh, I recommend those highly. They're, they're great, very, uh, very comforting books, but they're not, um, they're not smarmy. You know, there's conflict and there are problems. But he's a good writer. We can't leave this topic without um, giving um, honor to Ann Tyler, one of the most beloved American writers for many, many years, who has a current bestseller. She really hasn't flagged. And one of her earlier books, if not her first, was Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. Uh, Ezra is the one who stayed at home, looked after his mom, and he runs a restaurant. He cooks what people are homesick for. Very much an Ann Tyler book, set in Baltimore. (laughs) Uh, and still available. That's a good one. Lynn Cullen uh, has written a number of books. She has a new one coming out, which is not on topic, but I have to mention it's about the woman scientist who actually did discover the cure for polio. That comes out next week, the woman who discovered the cure. But earlier, she wrote a book entitled The Sisters of Summit Avenue. And again, it's a sister story. One of them who has stayed home To run the family farm, has inherited the farm, and faithfully stays there, raises her family. It's a truly a hard-scrabble life in the 1930s. Her other sister goes to the city, marries a very successful man, and becomes, get this, a Betty Crocker. There were Betty Crockers who worked for General Foods and responded to letters when people would write in and say, why is my pie crust too crumbly? And they literally would write to a Betty Crocker who would answer their questions. So she had the sweetheart job. And the family conflict is eventually resolved. But it's a great sister story. And I certainly never knew there were real Betty Crockers. Makes me wonder if there's a real Sarah Lee someplace. (laughs) I don't know. Speaking of more baking, since you brought it up, a book from several years ago by Amy Bender is The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake. And some of you might remember this book because it was a little odd. It was one of those books that people embraced or couldn't couldn't wrap their heads around, maybe understandably. But a woman has the ability to taste emotion in what someone has baked or cooked. And it starts when she's nine years old. Her mother bakes her a lemon cake, and as she tastes it, she says to herself, my mother is very sad, and there's something, there's something in her life that's really troubling her. And the woman is either blessed or cursed with this her whole life. She can taste emotion in food. Um, so it's a little magical realism. It's a lot magical realism, but is a, I thought it was a delightful story. It's funny that you mentioned that, because as you've been describing these books, I was thinking how closely the food is joined with emotional connection and family connection, which makes sense, since food is at the core often of family events and such. That's very true. Maybe that's why I like them so much, because I like the dynamics and the, the family relationships in these stories. The other thing about, I would say, all of these books is, if you're looking for a book club book, and you traditionally eat at your meetings, all of these would be perfect because you could uh, make an excuse for serving something that you really like that maybe you ordinarily wouldn't serve because it's part of the book. Beer comes to mind. Okay. Wine for my book club. 
So those are all great books. And The Sisters of Summit Avenue is by Lynn Cullen, C-U-L-L-E-N. Thanks a lot. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, uh, signing off. So that makes me think of one of my first movies I remember, which was Soylent Green. Um, and uh, you can find out what food that was, 1973 with Charlton Heston's. If you're interested in books, go to mediasanctuary.org and type in books in the search. Now we have all our segments. Wonderful. And now to close out tonight's show, we highlight a past intern. The sanctuary runs on people power. Lavender takes on this interview. Hi, Lavender here, and I'm here with Quay Miche, previous intern at the Sanctuary, here to talk about their time as an intern and what they're up to now. Hi, Quay, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So can you uh, tell us about when and how you first heard about the Sanctuary? I believe I was a sophomore at RPI when I first heard about the Sanctuary. Um, at the time, I was in the STS department, um, which is Science, Technology, and Society for the Uninitiated. And they'd done a lot of work with the sanctuary at that point. And I had a professor called Guy Schaefer, love Guy. Um, and we, we had a class together and he was uh, kind of introduced me to different ways in which I can get involved with the local community. And the sanctuary came up. So I started working with them with the Uptown Summer Program. And I stayed on to do an internship during my fall semester of junior year, working with the Nature Lab, doing some you know workshops, programming in that, in that capacity, and also helping out with the radio. So what what drew you in? What what made you want to want to join the team? Um, I've always been really passionate about the arts. Um, when I was an undergrad, I was in this performing arts troupe um, called the Ife Tayo Youth Ensemble in Brooklyn. And even though I chose to do STEM in college, like that was always like a huge part of me. And so finding an organization that did both art and STEM and like in this very interesting intersection with social justice as well was like super up my alley. So when I discovered it, I was like, yeah, like I definitely want to be involved with this. Yeah. So can you talk more about your involvement and like what your day to day was like? So for those who don't know, the sanctuary is pretty small. Um, so there's always a ton of things to do. Um, everyone needs help with everything. And it kind of creates this really communal environment in which, yeah, you have like your assignments and things that you're meant to do, but like there's this expectation that everyone kind of helps each other. That sort of communal energy was really, really cool for like one of your first job experiences. You know, you always have support things that you're working on and you get to explore other opportunities, you know, just on your everyday, new, something new is happening and you get to be part of that, which is really beautiful. And so when I was there, even though I came on to help with Uptown Summer and do a lot of these ecological and kind of like field work, research oriented tasks, I ended up helping out a lot with some program um, management and on like the back end doing like curriculum development for the nature lab, but then also doing event planning and event management and advertising and marketing on social media. Like there's just all these things that are coming up and then the radio is right there and like they always need support. So I started working with that as well. And I, um, I was doing some like light audio engineering in my spare time. Yeah. Anything that was going on, I was like there. I repainted the gallery at one point. Like there's <laughs> just so much. 2018 slash 2019 is when this was. Uh, so when did you end up leaving your role at the sanctuary and where did you go after that? So as I mentioned, when I continued on with them in the fall semester, it's like sort of an internship. So RPI has this program called, I, I forget what the name is for it, but essentially you can take one of your junior semesters and do it in the summertime and it frees up space for you to do an internship or a co-op in your junior year. Art. Art. Yes. yes. Summer art. 
Yes. That was the program. Um, so I was in the second pilot of that program. And so I did, I did my internship for the fall semester and junior, like junior year was kind of crazy. And so my second semester, I had like almost no time for anything. And I just kind of like tapered and faded away into the distance um, after my internship was kind of done. And senior year was like even crazier. I had like 44 credits. So <laughs> there was no time for anything. And of course the pandemic. So all of that kind of happened and I, I moved back to Brooklyn and I've kind of just been downstate since then. So what are you up to now? Still the jack of all trades that I ever was. Um, I'm always doing a million things. My mom likes to joke that if, if I sit down, I'm going to have a heart attack. Like I don't know how to take rest. <laughs> but these days I um, I've been doing some program management. So I mentioned that I, I did my undergrad at RPI. I stayed on for a master's degree as well. Um, with their co-term program. So I officially graduated everything in 2021. Um, and since then, I've been doing these sort of like program management roles in the STEM world. So I ran a research program at the Bronx Zoo for a little bit with high school and college kids. That was super fun. Love that. That kind of helped me like continue on that, uh, that aspect of like urban ecology and um, communal involvement, which is really cool. But I've also been acting and modeling in New York City all this time, I've done some short films. I've been a background actor in some TV shows that I can't mention because I signed some NDAs. <laughs> Darn it. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, keep an eye out. You might see me in some shows. You never know. Um, making music, you know, doing some music management. I do a little bit of it all. I'm just out here having experiences. How did your experience at the sanctuary stay with you and influence your life and career going forward? Um, I think while I was at the sanctuary, I definitely learned some people skills um, and some of the ins and outs of the nonprofit world. So the work that I do in like my nine to five kind of era, the research program that I was running. So the zoo is part of WCS, which is the Wildlife Conservation Society. And they're a nonprofit that run like all of the zoos and aquariums in New York City. And so um, having the experience of uh, working within a nonprofit structure definitely helped me in my jobs post-grad. Um, but then also the way that the sanctuary is involved with the community and the way that they connect with like schools and things of that nature and the era of the sanctuary that I was a part of, we were like working on this grant to get a solidified space for the nature lab. So like a community science center. Um, which so is, I was a part of which that is real now. Is what happened? Yes. You should go visit. I need to come see like how everything has like grown out. But it's yeah, a, I was part yeah. of the early parts of that. Um, which was like really cool and like, you know, organizing communities to be a part of that process and all of that, that definitely helped me in my job post, post-grad, but then also being able to balance the art and the STEM in my life while I was there and being in a space that valued both of those pieces equally was really important. And so I, I definitely keep that with me like every single day because I feel in the STEM world, there's not a lot of appreciation for the value of the arts. People think it's just something that's like fun and silly and you just do that in your free time. It's not anything important or a value or like a real career, but in the sanctuary, like that's not the vibe at all. They understand the value of the art and how important it is to cultivate that alongside STEM. And then sometimes on the flip side, the art world, like people can think that the STEM, STEM folks are just like way too uptight and they don't really understand like anything about culture or anything like that. Um, which to some some degree is a little bit true. <laughs> but I think that like being able to find balance in the technical and the artistic is just like, it's a skill that needs constant cultivating. And I definitely began that journey at the sanctuary and I continue that in my daily life now. 
Yeah, so in the same vein, uh, you kind of answered this, but is there some something that was the most important thing you learned from the internship? I think the most important piece that I learned was definitely the people skills um, and creating some kind of work-life balance. As I mentioned before, Sanctuary is super small. And while it can be really uh, eye-opening to have so many experiences across different, you know, programming and community outreach and social justice, you know, being involved in all those different things, um, can be really eye-opening, but um, when when the work is so close to your heart, sometimes it can be really hard to create a work-life balance. Um, and then you're also working with people from different backgrounds um, and different experiences, you know, different age groups. Like there's so much diversity within that one community. Um, and so developing the skill set to communicate effectively with all of these different demographics and these different kinds of people, um, and to be able to bring them together and orient them towards the same goal was a super, super valuable skill that I did not realize um, I'd use so frequently in my adult life. Um, I've definitely grown to appreciate that. Seeing as it was so close to your heart, what was one of your favorite memories of your time there? Maybe an event in particular or just a moment that comes to mind? I always think about Uptown Summer and honestly, I, I mentioned this in my interview for my job as program coordinator of Product True. Product True was the research program that I was doing at the Bronx Zoo. But working at Uptown Summer literally set me in this like, like I knew that this was the kind of work that I wanted to do. Like I want to work with teenagers, doing, getting them interested in ecology. Like that's my whole vibe. Um, but in particular, like just being involved with the kids that summer and like, you know, seeing like urban kids like myself, like I'm from Brooklyn, there's no... Urban ecology exists, but there's no real like education around that. There's no structures around that to like let people know like, yeah, like you like nature, you're in it. This is your natural environment. Like it exists here. You don't have to go all the way upstate to some forest to like participate. Like you can do it right here in your home. So being able to like interact with kids who kind of remind me of myself and like, you know, the teenager that I once was and getting them interested in ecology and showing them, you know, how the natural world is right there in their backyard in their front yard in their home and getting them um, inspired to like be engaged in urban stewardship was super powerful. And just like watching them grow into that over the course of like two months was so crazy to me. So that's part 11 of the series about former interns and you too can become an intern at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Mark Dunley. Uh, we want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible. Uh, Elizabeth Press, Rhea Barthel, Lavender, and myself. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. 